0: Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer, Leo Garcia, joined as always via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor, Ben Travers. Today, we're gonna be discussing three shows coming back from the dead. Well, really only two shows. One is just a reunion.
1: It's the most zombie though.
2: It is the most zombie of the three shows. It's arguably the best of the three shows. And by arguably, I mean, it definitely is. That's right. We'll be
0: giving Ben a chance to rebut what Libby and I said about Friends last week. He'll get one minute. This is the millions and millions of little screens. Can't
2: you shut up, I'm busy. Boy, what a great show.
0: Skipping ahead to the clicker and the meat of this week's episode. We're gonna be talking about three shows uh, that had their returns uh, this weekend or soon to be. Uh, But we're gonna start with the Friends reunion uh, that Libby and I talked about last week. Ben, you get one minute one minute to rebut anything Libby and I said last week about the friends reunion
2: and go. First of all, uh, I don't even know where to start. Friends is an all time great sitcom. Like it's, it's, it's what's important to friends. What's important to remember about friends is that people tend to think of friends as a broad comedy. They tend to lump it in with the multicam sitcoms that are, you know, a little bit more recent and a little bit, uh, to put it frankly, dumber, like the Big Bang Theory. Um, but Friends, the magic of it, the thing that everybody tends to talk about when they're like, oh, man, we have to find a way to recreate that. We have to find the success. We have to model our show, you know, in a way that can that can be the next Friends, which happened, you know, far too often and was uh, in far too many misguided ways in the past. It's not... That, like, they put pretty people in front of the camera. It's not that they were all just lead characters. It's not that there was, you know, impeccable cast chemistry that was just, you know, too perfect to be. Great job, Ben. <laughs>
0: Great job, Ben.
2: Way it was to go. the intimacy that they now, created with the
0: your audience. Time is, your time is up. Your time is up.
1: It is a personal favorite of mine that I have difficulty revisiting. Um, I really loved it when it was on. Um until like life got in the way i like to wind ben up uh which is why i go all in and fr- on friends hatred but like i can still recite every uh line of the the one with the embryos the the game show one like i like i i i was a very huge friends fan so i get it and It is neither as good nor as bad as anyone on this podcast is making it sound.
2: Uh, Well, to, to bring it back to the topic at hand, one, yes, it is extremely easy to wind me up about Friends because I get extremely defensive about it, mainly because I do feel like there's a lot of misrepresentation when people talk about why Friends was so good. And when it comes to the Friends reunion, which is the reason that we're talking about Friends, the uh, the HBO Max delayed special that was originally supposed to help launch the platform a year ago before the pandemic pandemic struck and made it impossible to get as many people in the room together as they wanted uh, for this nearly two-hour <laughs> reunion special. It is very long, and a third of it is clips, so that was, it would have been fine, but the rest of it would have been a little tricky. Um, what the special really fails to do is understand the show that it's trying to honor which to me is is just it made it a very uncomfortable viewing experience it made it very hard for me to watch the thing uh, just from the perspective of someone who both has a lot of respect for the people who made this show uh, and also wants to see that show discussed in a way that holds it to a, a higher standard than a lot of people want to hold it to and none of that happened but Again, to get back to the original point uh, that I tried to make and failed in the minute-long portion of this, what made Friends so special was that it treated its audience members as individuals, as the seventh friend. The way that it was shot, the way that it was, uh, you know, kind of constructed as a hangout show, even the multicam, like, portion of it really facilitated the idea that you were just... In the room with them at all times experiencing these things with them and making them like part of your friend group like you just kind of slid in there and became an intimate member of this ensemble and i think that that's really the magic of the show like it was able to convince so many people and there's a few people in the special they have a a, a brief section of kind of um fans from around the world who talk about you know what made friends so important to them and a few of them mention you know it really made them feel like they were part of something when they were alone if they'd moved to a new place if they'd you know gone to college or you know lived alone or just didn't have a roommate or just were struggling at times they'd turn this on and they'd feel that kind of communal atmosphere that you can typically only get by actually socializing with people And that's, you know, obviously such an important thing to keep in mind during the pandemic. Like, that's a service that the show could provide for people who were able to buy into that dynamic uh, that the show created for them. Um, But the special doesn't really do that. The special keeps doubling down on, you know, this was a huge show and everybody liked it and it was big and it was... Uh, broad and it was literally just about these few big things that everybody knows and we're gonna call attention to those and we're gonna have you tell the same stories over and over again uh, we're gonna put you in front of a big audience we're gonna you know have these very planned out reveals that don't really work we're gonna bring back guest stars to literally wave and say hello and not speak like Thomas Lennon comes in for the <laughs> for this thing like they do a gag where, Uh, Like three or four people put their hands out from behind a curtain and Joey has to pick his identical hand twin and he actually gets it right. And Thomas Lennon, who was, again, like a guest star on the show, but also was the co-star of Matthew Perry and The Odd Couple on CBS. So he's pretty close with at least two of the people in the cast. Doesn't say a word. He just gets shoved back into the background and has to go away. The same thing happens for Gunther, uh, when who has to video conference in, basically say all of the six cast members look good and then leave. Like it's just it's just the special is so geared toward just look at these people. They're older now. Look at them, remember when they were young, go watch the show again that it doesn't do anything to remind you of why you were connected to them it actively acts as an impediment to you connecting with this group again and what made it all the more frustrating was at the very top of the special they do something pretty clever uh, which you know obviously is designed to kind of pull at the heartstrings but they le- they let they introduce each member of the cast individually just as they walk into the stage and the the sound stage has been prepared the the monica and chandler's Mo, or monica and rachel's apartment joe and chandler's apartment have been set decked and they just walk in and look and one by one they go in so then they'll see each other and they'll greet each other but they'll also just start pointing things out and there's a there's a very clear shot where you actually see that dividing line between the concrete of the sound stage and the floor of the apartment and you're like that's the line i never got to see and now I'm walking it with them. Like now I'm in this moment with them and I just get to be there as the extra friend as this happens. Like I'm a part of this again. And they so quickly eliminate that in favor of bringing in James Corden and, you know, these these horrible, big, crazy questions that it just kind of, it, it jolts you out of it. It takes you into this place where it's like, oh, I'm not experiencing this with them I'm just one of a billion people who watched a TV show and I'm just fawning over these people being asked to play dress up again. Like it it doesn't, it violates this kind of weird ethos that I think made the show special. And will it get people to watch the show again? Absolutely. You want to almost immediately reimmerse yourself in what was familiar to you to eradicate this thing you just saw uh so yeah he'll probably go back and watch friends again but in terms of the special actually doing anything to bolster the show's deserved respect as a great sitcom it just didn't do that and i felt really bad about it because i'd like i'd like more people to to understand why this thing was so special Well, this past weekend, guys, there were two
0: shows that have been uh, on hiatus or people thought would never come back uh, that both debuted on Sunday um, in HBO's In Treatment and Netflix's Master of None. Libby, I know you have thoughts on both of these shows. Yeah. But I want to throw to Ben who just went on a uh, 45 minute Friends tirade (laughs) just, just that you'll sort never of, hear. just sort of get your your lay of the land on on the return of in treatment and uh, master of none master of none was which was a huge surprise when we all found out there was a new season coming uh, a few months ago yeah so sort of your your thoughts on these shows being resurrected in new in new ways
2: um, I'm gonna start with uh, in treatment I guess because I feel like we probably have a bit more to say about master of none but let's find out um, Treatment to me was a show that I only experienced in bits and pieces before. It was something when uh, it aired originally, I'd catch like random episodes or kind of a series of episodes on cable when there was like a free HBO weekend and I would get very, very invested and then it would get ripped away from me and I'd just try to forget about it. Um, and eventually I, I caught a little bit more and, and really enjoyed it. But going back to rewatch at least kind of the beginning of the original series before this fourth season that reinvents a lot of things came out reminded me of like so many of the little things that had to get, it had to be done exactly right for the show to work because essentially it is a stage play where you have two characters talking to one another. Um, There's usually a bit of mystery as you're trying to figure out, you know, what are they saying? What does it mean when they say it this way? What does it mean when? What? What can I garner from what they're not saying? Um, and you're kind of asked to get, you know, ushered into a role next to the therapist. Like you're trying to almost work in conjunction with him, or at least appreciate kind of the questions that he asked because you had similar questions, or you wanted those answers, or you can see how he's, you know, drawing them out. Um, and there's drama there. There's a lot of really good. Uh, character work done by the actors done by uh, the writers um, and it was it was a very impressive show and, and honestly those first few episodes they will hook you right away if you don't know what happens with those characters over the course of the first season uh, you're in for a real treat just kind of watching it unfold and, and enjoying the various twists and turns um, and the new season to me Uzo Adubo is the new therapist she's incredible she, there's a reason she has three Emmys um, she's doing something completely different than the work she's done in those Emmy winning shows um, it's frankly kind of remarkable to think of Crazy Eyes as this therapist and be like yeah yeah sure that was the same person that, that'll work um, and it does and she does immaculate work the, the, the rest of the actors are also fantastic um, I have some questions about Some of the directorial choices, Uh, one of the things that I really admired about the early seasons of In Treatment were how they chose to very specifically focus on being in the room with these people and kind of stepping out of that was a big choice. And in this, it's like we know they don't trust the audience to do that with them and they don't trust their own writing to kind of sustain it. So there's a ton of like, let's get up off the couch and walk around the apartment. Let's go outside the apartment. Let's look at, or not the apartment, the house. Uh, The very, very nice uh, architectural find. Um, Some of that doesn't necessarily work for me. Some of the ways the characters are developed don't work for me. But my biggest thing that I felt with the new season of In Treatment was that it didn't feel like they were as, as invested in the people as they were with the issues the people represented they really want to talk about the issues that these people are are dealing with because they're identifiable in the culture as we're living it and there were too many moments for me in the first 16 episodes um again these are in treatment does half hour episodes where uh Two air sunday to air monday so you get four new episodes per week so you're yep. getting like a i mean if you want to binge it by all means good luck but you can also kind of pick and choose and just follow uh you know specific patients if you want to do that um anyway uh the, the the format of it to me didn't quite hold up there were too many moments where it just didn't feel like these people were real it felt more like they were representative And that kind of takes me out of it uh, and makes it feel more like I'm listening to someone vent and listening to not necessarily a lecture, but at least one side of a lecture. And that kind of ruins the spell for me when I'm trying to invest in the authenticity of these people. Uh, And even if I wasn't, even if it was just supposed to be the drama, then the drama is a little bit amped up this year there's much more melodrama involved in in the therapist story in Uzo Aduba's story uh than was in in the past when uh Gabriel Byrne was the star so there's just little tweaks that I think could be pretty easily rectified or maybe not easily rectified but could be rectified in the right hands um so it's 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 in treatment that's (laughs) It's it's back. They can make adjustments. It could be great again. I don't know. Libby, share your thoughts, please. I need to start. How talking.
1: much of this is because of Joel Kinnaman, Ben?
2: Oh, uh, honestly, much less than I feared. I was. I thought so. Very very worried when I learned that Joel Kinnaman was.
1: You know you were. He's Not a
2: series regular, is he? Because he's not no. in enough. He's in. He's like,
1: recurring. Yeah
2: yeah yeah, and he's actually fine. I think it was. Pretty good casting for the characters.
1: It's to very play. interesting ca- casting, I think, yeah. and kind of goes back to sort of his plays around with those dirtbag roots that he in those roles he used to play uh, much like, closer
2: to the killing than some of his yeah. more recent stuff. Yeah, yeah, but which which he was good at. He was good.
1: Yeah, he was really good in the killing. Um, he was a really interesting actor in the killing. Let's say, yeah. um, I I love. I love your take on this, Ben, because I watched the first sixteen episodes of this season of Entreatment, and I was left a little cold, and I didn't, I couldn't figure out why. I, I mean, there are stark differences from from the original series, which I was a huge fan of um, from the beginning. I am obsessed with psychological stuff, and Gabriel Byrne's amazing, and this was really, you know, in the heart of HBO's no one does drama like we do drama um which i think is a very significant representation of of maybe the difference between um in treatment now and in treatment then in treatment then was a very was a was a very i don't know a subtle show a more subtle show than than season 4 is um it seems, and I didn't actually revisit the the originating seasons, but it, it seemed as though um, the series used to be less interested in Paul's private life than than it was with um, with Uzo Aduba's uh, Doctor Brooke. Something, I can't remember. Uh, Dr. Brooke's life. Um, and and that throws the show off balance for me. The other problem, I think, is the existence of couples therapy, which is a window into actual therapy sessions with one of the... Dr. Brooke Taylor. Gosh, I knew it was just, like, plain Jane. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems much more obsessed with, with Dr. Brooke Taylor... Taylor's life, um, to an upsetting degree. I think. I think it throws off the balance of the show. I was appreciated with the other uh, with the original entreatments that finding out things about Paul seemed sort of like a, a slow burn. You would get these windows into his private life, um, but they were furtive. They're, they were furtive. Um, here we're just we're just smacked down in the middle of of brooke taylor's house and she doesn't even have like a separate entrance private office that her patients are coming in they're just walking through her front door um this beautiful california like manse um and it's strange because that's not the relationship a lot of people cultivate with their therapists uh a lot of times it's very important to keep this this sort of, um, non-porous wall between you and your therapist. So you don't feel like there's judgment. So you're not busy thinking about them as opposed to yourself. It's one of the difficulties that people actually ran into during the pandemic when they had to move their therapy, uh, online, because all of a sudden you get a window directly into, uh, your therapist's home. In some cases, uh, you're looking at what books they have on their bookshelves. Their cat is interrupting your session. Actually, I talk about a lot of this with Dr. Orna in an interview we'll be running next month. um And it's different. And 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 in treatment is just all in on that. Like we are in for as much as we're out and about and in different places. We are in Dr. Brooks' home this entire time and it feels both more and less claustrophobic than it used to feel in Paul's office because in Paul's office you felt like that invisible person on the couch you felt like the fly on the wall but but watching season four you feel like someone watching a television show about therapy um that's what I what I miss I also miss Um, Diane Wiest was in the original seasons Mm. as Paul's personal, uh, I mean, therapist, professional therapist, it's actually something, again, we see in couples therapy, the main, the central therapist has a colleague that they speak to in every week, every week, in every episode, uh, in, in treatment, it was one of the sessions every week was Paul's with his colleague, they sort of do that with season four not to great effect not with a colleague and it is it hurts the show uh i understand what they're trying to do um but it, it also feeds into one of those problems i talked about earlier about not having good boundaries um and not They're, balancing the story very well.
2: They reach a point where I literally don't know if I'm supposed to trust Dr. Brooke when she's giving advice to people. Like, there's a, there's something very early on she does with her one Zoom client, um, where you can your your the episode is constructed to make you see how the advice would help her, would benefit her, and right. how she could be coaching him into a relationship with her that she needs more than he does.
1: Yeah. It's, and
2: those yeah. kind of choices continue to ramp up throughout the season in a way where I was like, oh, this is this is kind of ruining the other patients and like everything else going on with the show.
1: I literally, when I talked to Uzo Adubas, an interview that will also run next month, uh, asked her if I thought if she thought Dr. Brooke was a good therapist uh so stay tuned for that answer but i, I think will. the fact that i mean again these were things that the early seasons of in treatment dealt with um paul made poor decisions sometimes um he made questionable decisions he made decisions that came back on him that he had to deal with the ramifications of had to deal with recriminations for um But there was never really a question at the baseline that he is, 85% of the time, a good therapist. Um, I think season four plays with that line too much. I think it lives in a gray area that you don't want. And, like, there is room for a show about a bad therapist. But that is also nightmare fuel for a country that really needs to get more people into therapy. So...
2: Also, we should mention, like, I I feel like I didn't talk about this in the review either, and I don't think it's too spoilery to get into. Gabriel Byrne is a presence in the show. Like, he is, he was her mentor. And there's, like, an offhanded comment, and I think you could do, we could do a whole other conversation about how the show handles the pandemic. But there's, like, an offhanded comment about how he's, like, the nation's doctor now. Like, he's so busy being the nation's doctor, like, the nation's therapist, whatever it is. A little fouch? and (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. And there's... uh. There's hints that he will resurface in that role of like her therapist. And I feel like if that doesn't happen, it would be a huge betrayal because of how much they've gone down that road. Uh, But good lord, do they need it. Like, it's almost like they need him to come in and be like, hold on, we got to steady this out. Like, use the character to steady her out so then the show itself can be steadied out along with it. But. Uh, anyway, I'll be, I'll be tuning in to see that much. At least
0: this next show didn't have the (laughs) 10 and a half years that in treatment had between seasons rather just four for master of none. Granted, I don't think there was ever real plans for a season three, even in 2017, uh, Aziz Ansari had said that he didn't really have plans unless he like was married and had a kid and could really like change what, uh, the show was about. Then of course, all the babe.com allegation stuff, happened uh, and that sort of really threw any halting progress on a potential season three until this third season was announced with five episodes written and directed by uh, Aziz and and written by Aziz and Lena Waite starring Lena Waite's character of Denise. And those all dropped on Sunday.
1: I should have liked this season of Master of None. That's how it will start this. This should have been right in my wheelhouse as a woman with a wife who has struggled with uh the strains of a long-term relationship who has struggled with one partner having career success while another kind of stands by who's struggled with whether or not to have children with the struggle of whether or not you can have children and and ivf and they should have been right up my alley and it really left me cold and i do think a very large part of it is the direction Aziz sits in these long takes, uh, excruciatingly long. Um, like, you know, you'll 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 have seen shows before where it's like, oh, they should have ended this scene 10 seconds ago. And this is something like, oh, they should have ended this scene 90 seconds ago. Um, he's doing it on purpose, and my wife points out that it's probably uh, an homage to the filmmaking of um Bergman. He settles back in the frame and he just kind of lets people do things and you're supposed to infer things. And um, it's fine. But it is this love story about this couple and the entire the entirety you the entire amount of time you have to believe that this is a convincing couple and to be invested in this couple is 10 minutes. There is 10 minutes before it all starts to fall apart. And, sorry, spoilers, I guess. Like, this is all spoilers. Whatever. Um, and my question is, how do you care that something's falling apart if you don't care that it was ever together? Um, but there is one particular storyline that really sticks in my craw. So, But before I jump into that, I'm going to throw to Ben to see his take on kind of the entire season of this
2: uh well first of all i i want to point out because i don't feel like it's been discussed even close to enough just how much this season leans on scenes from a marriage specifically
1: yeah 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 like
2: even the even the initial scene of that series where the the primary couple is being interviewed by somebody and like having their photograph taken is copied in master of none when lena waste character who's a successful author has tried to do a follow-up and a reporter shows up to profile and then the the her partner gets welcomed into the conversation and they just sit down and, and talk about their past and that's like an expositional technique but it's also very much like a specific homage to scenes from a marriage uh and even though it's been a long time since I've seen scenes from marriage all the way through I can't wait to re-watch it because we've got a remake coming this year on HBO with Oscar Isaac and that sounds great the big bullet points of what happens in this relationship are also exactly what happens in scenes from marriage so spoiler I'm sorry for master of none season three if you are more familiar with scenes of a marriage uh you're gonna understand what these people are going through and I feel like that is kind of one of my bigger problems with how the season felt, and I think it speaks to kind of what you're talking about, Libby. A lot of this feels like it's trapped between kind of an observation and an embodiment. So the way it's directed, the way it's written, the kind of homage that, that it's designed around all kind of keep the characters at a distance for me, and yet the show is supposed to make you feel intimately close to these two specific people um I think that's a problem so I think I do think the filmmaking is a problem um my larger take though and and the one that I wrote primarily about in the review mainly because I didn't want to spoil everything from,
1: like that's hard from, not to
2: I, like before it came out I didn't want to spoil everything oh, yeah yeah um but it's that to me the early seasons of master of none um weren't so much about aziz's character like they they by the end of season two they really did focus on his particular relationship and season one you know focuses pretty heavily on one of his particular relationships but the beauty of it was that he was so eager to kind of go have all these different discussions whether it was like spending time with his parents uh and turning his dad into a tv star which first of all please bring back more of mr Ansari. he's great um or you know going off on going off with friends or traveling and being exposed to new people like he was very eager and curious to kind of delve into all these other little stories and that to me felt like what his book was about that to me felt like what he kind of wanted to do as a filmmaker he wanted to be just the curious kid running around asking questions and then making shows about the things that he discovered and that works really well when you're doing little bite-sized stories of people like that works really well when you're um you know you're visiting these people for a half an hour or even five minutes within a half an hour and you kind of get that perspective acknowledged and then you go back to your main character and then spending as much time as you do with aziz's character in those first two seasons kind of warrants the further exploration of his individual relationships so that those have a, a very strong connection but like you said, Libby. When we're just kind of thrown in with these uh, two new, or with this new couple, and you don't have an immediate connection, and there's not a ton of time spent devoted to that connection, it's a little bit jarring, and then it's like the ethos that he had is reversed. Like he he's he desperately wants to branch out throughout the season. You can, you can see it in the moments when like they're in the waiting room and he hears those stray observational like commentary from the people walking by and you're like, oh, that's an interesting statement that she just made. It's like yeah. the camera wants to jump in with them and go off for a while. But and
1: I do too.
2: I do too. I do too. And that, I think that works better for his kind of storytelling as opposed to really trying to force something that wasn't there. And like the the name of this season was Moments in Love. So to me, like the idea that you're just trying to capture the moment when they're in love and then how, how it falls apart. Like seeing, okay, this is when they're at their peak and then this is kind of the degradation and then maybe it starts to loop back around, maybe it doesn't. That's an admirable goal. But it's really hard to tackle when you're trying to do it in... A condensed amount of time, and in the style that you prefer, and when you're paying homage so heavily to something that is very familiar structurally to people, um, it just kind of undermines the whole thing for me. So, so in in short, the season felt far more familiar as opposed to both previous seasons and what I'd expect from from uh, this kind of storytelling.
1: Uh, just to jump on the back of that, because it was it was scenes from a marriage that my wife was talking about, and she pointed out something to me that I hadn't consciously noticed because she's much better with structure and craft stuff. Um, he There's really only jump to close-up once in yeah. the entire series, in the entire season. And Bergman doesn't do that. Bergman cuts in on his characters when it's a particularly emotional scene, something that would have had a much more interesting and needed effect and and wouldn't have left me so cold like the fly on the wall perspective in this case is torture and i think it is it was almost excruciating to watch this i know that's harsh language it was very difficult to watch this coming out of a pandemic because i felt claustrophobic i felt trapped in this relationship um I was like, oh my God, get away from each other. Like you're just, it's not just get away from each other. And so as Ben said, someone walks through a lobby talking about something interesting. Like all I want to do is run after them and follow them um, and eavesdrop, like I'll get a coffee and just like lurk behind them because I need to get away (laughs) from what I'm trapped in right now. And I doubt that was the plan um but i'm gonna go hyper specific with my with my overarching complaint about master of none which is how it handles a very particular storyline that i've actually seen a lot of praise for um master of none gets into the journey of ivf for some couples um and and let me start by saying part of part of my issue with this is that the season is wholly inconsistent financially Um, the people, the, the, the couple has as much or as little money as they need at a certain time. Um, at one point, someone talks about having a specific piece of furniture flown in from another country. And then on the other hand, they'll say, oh, we can't afford, we can't afford to go to a hospital to do, um, sperm injection so we have to do the turkey baster method and it's like i don't what and then and then um you'll see someone trying to enter ivf and you know that they you would appear that they have kind of a lower wage job (laughs) but then they're able to afford this cycle of ivf with that which without insurance is astronomical um People mortgage their cars. They, they put out second mortgages on their home to do cycles of IVF because many, many insurances don't cover any of it. Um, so they get into this IVF story, but I feel like it's very surface level. The LA Times story well, said that they spoke to Ansari and he got the idea for it because he was talking to a friend on the phone who was going through it. And it really just felt like he was just like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, And then I'm going to write about that. And then just kind of took what they told him. It it doesn't have any lived in experience. Uh, It totally misses the fact that IVF is fucking boring. It like it's so boring and it takes so much time. It is fully a second job with injections and uh, temperatures and and (laughs) and other injections and pills and ultrasounds and, and you do all of this. And then a lot of times it doesn't work. And by doesn't work, I mean, you can't even get to the point you were supposed to go to to get to the step that you needed to do before you could move on to another step. It was just this streamlined process and there were setbacks, but they weren't insurmountable. And and everything works out neatly in a 40-minute thing. And I, I realize... They I, like I don't know how to say it other than they they told the story wrong. Uh, it was it was dull, but it wasn't insightful. Um, it 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 just if if you are unfamiliar with the process and that's what you saw, I just don't think you got what happens at all, and it hurts my feelings <laughs> that it is then held up like oh this is representation, and I'm further hurt because this is a story about a queer couple like about a queer woman who has is 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 i mean spoilers who's trying to do this on her own uh she has a sperm donor but you know ivf has to be done in a in a hospital setting uh and there's no insurance set up for like people who want to try and conceive a child uh that aren't that the process that the problem with their fertility is that they are a, they are queer um, There, there's no coding for that in insurance that like they don't have heterosexual sex so they can't get pregnant so they need to do this like they had as mentioned in passing, but they don't really get into like the privilege of being able to afford IVF. They don't get into further the the struggles of of the queer community to to get basic medical care, but then also specialized medical care. Uh, they it's just um, they just have a layover in IVF town. They they don't live there. <laughs> they haven't spent any time there. Hell, they didn't even vacation there. Uh they visited the airport. They picked up a brochure and they left. And that's not enough for me. And and it hurt my feelings cuz I I just think they could have and should have done better. Um Well, isn't pri- isn't wanted.
0: private life right there for them to <laughs> look at as like an example of how this thing actually operates? Uh it it is it, I don't know. It it is to me this sounds like in the world of, of IVF, it sounds like this is like a first stab by someone in, in, in your parlance who like heard the story and just wanted to tell it without the lived in experience. And then like in 20 years, there will have been other media, like movies and television, that cover IVF in a far more uh, comprehensive manner, and we'll look back on this on this segment of the Master of None season and be like, that was cute and quaint. That like that's how That's how the public perceived what IVF was. Right. Almost like now when you look back and, and, you know, stories about, uh, I'm going to bring it up again. I'm sorry. But you look at Working Girl as a movie about like women can be empowered and do whatever. And you look and you're like, and it's Mike Nichols. And it's all these people that you love. And and you're like, in 1987, groundbreaking, earth shattering. How like that a woman could do all these things. And now you're like. It almost feels as if it's mocking the idea that women can do things like watching a movie like that.
1: Right. And I, like it's, it's things like boys don't cry. Like, you know, part of it is is getting there, but it's not enough just to mention it or to, to talk about it. it. It's much more to understand it and then to derive an interesting and compelling story from it, um, all of which are different things. And it just like I, it feels weird to take a stand and be like, no, that's not good. I don't like that you like that because it's not good enough. Uh, but hey, that's where I'm at. And I'm very sorry, Netflix. And I really wanted to like it, but I didn't.
0: Guys, it is time for the mayor of Easttown murder power rankings. We only have one episode left. This will be the final rankings. And I think I've zeroed in on who the murderer is. But
2: first... Okay, hold... First? Hold on. What? We have breaking news. I don't know why they keep releasing these while we're doing our mayor segments, but there is breaking mayor of Easttown news uh, that we can relay before we get into your, your murder What? Power what alter
0: my rankings?
2: <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. But it will... It may raise the stakes for your final murder power rankings. Okay. Because the penultimate episode of HBO's newest hit, Mayor of Easttown delivered 2 million viewers Sunday night across all platforms, more than doubling its total premiere night performance in April and nearly tripling its digital viewership since debut. This marks its third week as the number one series on HBO Max and its fifth consecutive week of growth. The only other HBO series to grow every week throughout its first season was The Undoing, which went on to average more than 13 million viewers across HBO platforms, blah, 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 blah. Mayor of Easttown is on track to be the biggest HBO hit on HBO Max to date. So the pressure is on, Leo. Oh, People are listening. They are watching. They give a shit. They're invested. Tell us what you think will happen.
0: Well, I was going to say, that's, that's huge. What I do every week is I read the summary of the previous episode. And so for episode <laughs> six, the aptly titled Soar Must Be the Storm, which comes from a, I had to look this up, Emily Dickinson poem uh, which I was not aware of. Mare wakes up in the hospital after a heroic wet rescue and faces the unyielding pain that comes from losing a friend. Mare finds the stunning clue after Chief Carter gives her a second chance. Richard hopes to strengthen his relationship with Mare. Those felt like the three story arcs of the, of the episode. Uh, not, <laughs> a single, not, a, not a single mention of a Ross boy <laughs> in that synopsis. Um... Unimportant. Uh, Richard is the focus. Richard is what matters. <laughs> Richard bringing over some cold rolling rock. All the all the Philly faves. But yeah, we gotta move right into the rankings. There's a lot of crazy talk online right now. And I think, as I've stated before, I'm probably 99% wrong. Well, they're just, a, I, th- I think there's a lot of, obviously a lot of stuff swirling around the show. I think people are worried that if it is too on the nose, people will be disappointed. If it is the undoing, let's say uh which i don't think there's nothing that obvious as the undoing was um oh
2: yeah because the undoing basically just gave you one person and we're like did he do it or did he not do it and it was like oh he did it mayor has so many options as evidenced by your ever-changing murder power rankings it it
0: it it it, it shifts like the sands of the hourglass these rankings uh also just whatever mood i'm in it changes
1: (laughs) When These are the, the mayors podcast. of our East town.
0: Here's who's not on the list, but I, ha- I have seen bandied about. Did Lori Ross do it? I don't think so. And I, that's why she's not. That's why she's not in the five. I don't think she did it. But here we go. Top five. Last ranking five. Dylan Hinchy. I don't think he did it, but he's up to some, some suspicious shit. He's lying to the cops. Uh, he's threatening people with a gun, saying, I'll kill you. Like Aaron was shot in the face or whatever.
1: How that so, dude sucks.
0: So, <laughs> although he is bad, I don't think he committed the murder. I think he's up to some other. I think this is just a town full of fucking shitty That's dudes.
1: That's what I'm saying. It's a just town full of dudes. losers.
2: It's a town well, yeah. full of shitty dudes in We're, a country full of shitty dudes in a world full of shitty dudes. Mayor's got to
0: jump in her car and pull out of pull out of there to win. You know what I mean?
2: I do know what you mean.
0: Uh, all right, You're Dylan if it was five.
2: New Jersey, but sure. Yeah,
0: Dylan Henchy's five, four. Here's some Defending Jacob energy. Could it be Child Ross? Could it be Ryan? Now, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for Ryan to have done it. He, How did he get to that park in the middle of the night? How'd he get his hands on a police-style gun? Something like the one that Mare's dad used to have? I don't think it's him. He obviously has anger issues. I do think he maybe knows something about either Aaron's relationship with Billy and or John. Uh, and that, and that the actual secret is not whatever relationship with a woman John had had before, or maybe that is Aaron. But it is the idea that like he is holding on to the trauma of like he is aware of a murder. I think that's what's going on with with Ryan. Number three, Billy Ross. That's right, the cousin of the dad of the girl who was murdered, Billy, whose name I couldn't remember until he started becoming a major player. Had to earn that memory. Had to earn earn it, ended up in my Not brain space. Not even
1: listed on the characters, like breakdown from HBO. Billy. Yeah,
2: sta- savvy move by HBO.
0: Billy didn't do it. I don't know what Billy's trauma is. The fact he's being gaslit by his brother in such a crazy way, because I don't think he did it, but his brother is essentially force feeding him to say, you did it. You killed her. And then I'm going to take you out fishing and kill you. And I'm going to tell everyone that you did it so that it all points to you in some way, shape, or form. There's something obviously going on. I think, again, trauma is everywhere in this town. The outsider, this really is the spiritual successor of the outsider. El Cuco would love to hang in East Town and just suck up some of this grief. Oh, man. I think Mayor I would think welcome he knows El, it's Cuco. El Cuco.
1: <laughs>
2: oh no, is it El Cucco? <laughs> Mare would love it if El cuco showed up in town. She'd be like, yeah, fucking go off. I'm these.
1: What if this was a Stealth Outsider reboot? <laughs>
0: yeah. Now we're into the top two. And I, I mean, I think uh, I think this is where everyone's sort of leading with these two for different reasons. John Ross, Badman. Badman. I think the last episode showcased it in full... I think that he is likely the Ross that bought the pendant. I think he more than likely is DJ's father. I think he's about to kill Billy at the river before Mayor gets there. I I thought the last moment of this of the of the episode was going to be a gunshot, like that Mayor's Mayor's walking and you and you hear a gunshot uh, right. far afield. That being said, if it's not John, guys, there's one person left. Oh fucking Christ, guys, <laughs> it's it's Richard Ryan. It's Guy Pierce. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> You don't cast die. You don't cast. You don't cast Guy Pierce to be a okay date. He's not great. Well, for, he's, With he, the he's
1: bad a haircut. haircut. Yeah, he, he's he not He brought the
0: Rolling Rock. He's not the greatest guy. He's not the the worst guy. Uh he's somewhere in between. Uh he's the, a failed author or he had he, one okay he's, book. He's the fine. rumors.
1: That's all a middle-aged woman can expect. The rumor mill.
0: <laughs> the rumor mill on Richard Ryan is insane. The, the various things that he has some long held vendetta against uh, uh mayor's family. And that's essentially he he is he's the one who sort of, he killed Aaron and is, is trying to kill the Rosses and bring grief to her, a la El Cu- He's like an El Cuco. Is he El <laughs> An El Cuco type. El Cucu? You know, he's El Cuco. El Cuco. El I, I don't know how he gets to Aaron. <laughs> I love it I, I love that I know my number one is wrong but I'm sick in with number one.
1: That's what okay. I love about you Leo like your commitment to a bit is
0: Richard Ryan was number unrivaled. one on my first on our first Murder Power rankings. <laughs> Guy Pierce was one and I've come all the way back around. Guy Pierce, Richard Ryan, number one. He did it. He killed Aaron.
1: Ride that bomb all the way down, buddy. He's, okay. He,
0: he I, took he took he took Mayor's dad's gun and shot Aaron with it. <laughs> I don't know I why. I have a
2: lot uh, questions about the murder power rankings. You said you said that number three definitely didn't do it. You said the first one did do it. So you're betting on Guy Pierce. But is there a possibility that the second one did it, or is like, or are the rankings literally just? This one person definitely did it, and these other people are just the most suspicious. My
0: number one probably should be John Ross,
2: <laughs> but I'm sticking
1: with. I'm I'm going out on a limb. So he could have done That's, it. He I'm going out done on. It.
2: I'm
0: trying to be right. I'm trying to guess. I'm trying to outmaneuver the show, Ben.
1: This is your Zendaya. Well,
0: no,
2: I, I I get it. But like, you're also like, are you allowing for the possibility? Like, if we were doing this as a prediction style Emmy thing, you know, uh, when Libby bet hard on Zendaya. I believe I said yeah, Zendaya could win. Yeah. I don't think she will. I'm betting on this other person. Are you okay. saying John Ross could be the killer?
0: No, then I would I would flip those. I would say John Ross uh John Ross is the killer, but it could be <laughs> it could be Guy Pierce's uh, right. Richard.
2: But in your in your mind there are only two people who it could be. I think
0: Dylan H- Dylan Henchy is an outsider. He
1: would be a, a long shot outsider. Oh. Outsider long shot I got you I pick up what you're putting down
0: uh and then the other he's Ross boys I just outsider. put in
1: there I put the other
0: Ross boys in there just because like they they're the Ross clan has some uh negative A energy lot of them.
2: yeah there's all, uh, something uh, the dad up
0: there's that.
1: something up with the dad oh uh, I mean he was on rescue me so
0: <laughs> that's the problem he's the catcher and eight men out Millions of screens in production of the Penske Media Corporation and Our themes are featured excerpts of the classic YouTube video, Bjork Takmara TV and Willie Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor in chief is Sand Harris Wright, and our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Anne Donahue. Of the many shows that Friends served as the lead into, here are some of the few that didn't make it. Past two seasons, the Christina Applegate-led Jesse, the Jonathan Silverman vehicle, the single guy. Anthony Clark, starring as a good old boy from Virginia on Beantown in Boston Common. Good Morning Miami. should have gone. Sarah Paulson, Ken Marino, and Regina King in something called Leap of Faith. Sure. The Brockmire 1.0 clone starring Meyer on Inside Schwartz. Steven Weber hot off his wing success on a show called Cursed. And then Michael Chiklis, post-commish, but pre The Shield. On a show called Daddy-O yeah, These are real These are all real yeah. And then here's what I'll say Of all the shows that tried to replicate Friends Recipe for Success Millions of Screens strongly endorses Happy Endings The New Girl and Cougartown? Town? Yeah I needed three
1: Cougartown's friends when uh, they Girl. all turn into wine moms
0: You can find us on Twitter at Millions million screens At Midwest Spitfire, Ben T. Travers, and Leonard Garcia You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play So a review and let us know what you think This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you as always that you shouldn't let poets lie to you
1: You shouldn't let poets lie
0: to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool <laughs> podcast.